Sunday, 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 right here on twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. It's the Plex, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific and on into red light. We have the worst news in the week that no one else will cover. The Plex has it all. Conspiracy, right-wing nut jobs, Christian extremism, and Madison Star Moon. Tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. When they actually spend their time listening to this show, what does it mean? It means we're winning. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. Straight white male in America I got everything I need I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree And I can walk down the streets after dark No one wants to rape me And I can get a girl pregnant And just as easily flee Just like my straight white male dad so if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors And I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Alright everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree We show live every Wednesday at 7pm Pacific right here on Twitch Twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media If you're listening on the podcast, consider uh, checking us out over here I know the audiences are oftentimes not the same, and maybe you're not big on Twitch because uh, I don't know you think it's about gaming or whatever, but head on over. Check us out. We have a lot of fun. We do a show about cults and the satanic panic on Thursdays. We do bingo on Friday nights, conspiracy bingo, and Catterday, and uh, Media Wench usually does Meltdown Mondays on a Monday. We just have a lot of fun stuff going on here. Sometimes I DJ till four in the morning. Good old time. Um, we are moving studios soon, so if you're listening to this on the pod, uh, head on over to the support us page on our website, that's echoplexmedia.com slash support. Drop us a few bucks. We could sure use it to buy some new equipment and cover some of our moving costs. Um, I'm producer Dave, and you can find me damn near anywhere. As you can see, it's me alone, homo alone. HK is still on adventures. With any luck, he'll be back next week. I'm sure hoping for it. I don't mind doing the show by myself, but I sure like sure like having hk here as my co-host um <clears throat> balances things out i get mad then he gets really mad and then he just gets less mad and then i get really mad it's uh you know it's fun speaking of fun 
we are going to listen to a friend of Jeffrey Epstein talk to the race and IQ guy. I know we've been leaning kind of hard on the transphobia and homophobia thing lately. Um, so I figured this would be a nice change of, well, it's not true. It's not a nice change of pace, but it would be a bit of a change of pace. So without further ado, here is Lawrence Krauss and Charles Murray on human diversity. Hello, Galaxy Brain Intro. Hi, Lawrence Krauss here. Before we begin our podcast, I wanted to let you know that the Origins Project Foundation has four or five seats left associated with our special trip to Iceland, September 21st to 25th. Four nights, five days. Oh, I would love to go on that. You get stuck on a boat with him and he has to listen to me talk about, um, he has to listen to me talk about to everybody about how he hung out with Jeff Epstein well after everybody knew what was up with Jeff Epstein. He'd be so mad. We'll tour the iconic vistas of the land of fire and ice, one of the most remarkable geographical locations on Earth. And we'll also do several things that the public cannot normally go to, including a visit to a special carbon capture facility there. In addition, there'll be a public event with Barry and I and several local experts from Reykjavik. All told, we hope it'll be a remarkable experience. Will there be a phrenology um, exhibition there? As I say, one of those remarkable places on Earth. I hope you'll consider joining us. Go to www.originsproject.org and go to the travel page. And in the next two weeks, we still have those seats open before we close things up. Thanks. Charles Murray is a controversial figure and has been ever since he published The Bell Curve. That's because his book was wrong. Like the methods for collecting the data were faulty and the conclusions you couldn't draw, even if the data wasn't faulty, you couldn't draw the conclusions that Murray was drawing from the data. He's been castigated, castigated, hated, reviled, censured, censored. No, he's one of the most uncensored men in the, he works for a fucking think tank and he can always get an op-ed in some big publication. He has not been censored. Criticism is not censorship. Even harsh criticism, rude criticism, being told to go fuck yourself. None of those things are censorship. Charles Murray has a pretty big fucking megaphone. I wanted to have a discussion with uh, Charles for a variety of reasons. First, because I always worry that stereotypes of people are uh, inaccurate. No, no, no. No, no, no. You don't stereotype an individual. What the fuck? I thought this guy was hella smart. How do you stereotype an individual? I mean, you can... Okay, you can stereotype somebody, right? But you're not stereotyping somebody based solely on their own work and their own behavior. A stereotype is like a about a group, and then you apply it to an individual. This he's not being stereotyped. This guy, this guy's just what the fuck? That's not a stereotype. People have a chance to discuss their own ideas themselves. But more interestingly, I was taken by a new book by Charles Murray called Human Diversity, which sounds like it's going to be an emotional book again but as he points out if you're in the very beginning if you're looking for bombshells you won't find them it is instead a social scientist's take on the biological and scientific issues associated with human diversity in all its forms and he it's based on reading the technical you know that's the one i haven't read i think that's his most recent one i read i read uh the bell curve i actually read it at university i read um oh god uh not falling down. What was it called? It was another, it was like, a, it was the title was something about falling down or how we failed. 
I forget what the title was, but I read that, and that was some racist drivel too. Discussing things with with uh, experts, and his point, the whole purpose behind it, is something I find very important. He argues that social scientists often base their discussions on ideology or preferences and don't refer to the scientific literature. And he think it's, thinks it's really important for public policy and social science to base their discussions on science. Um, he, uh, he, he says that social sciences has been in the grip of an orthodoxy that is scared stiff of biology. And so I think it's really great to see that combination of, of using uh, science to, as the basis of, uh, of decision making, which is really one of the things we push in this, this podcast a lot. But Charles Murray's like policy prescriptions are like regressive and racist. And like, he doesn't, he says we shouldn't help the poor because basically the poor generally cognitively, he talks about cognitive stratification and he talks about basically how poor people are generally at the bottom of that stratification. And there's not a lot of evidence of that either. And the discussion, I discovered what a delightful, thoughtful uh, individual Charles was, and, and uh, the discussion is not heavily wrought in emotional questions, but really tries to explore the, as I say, the science behind human diversity and not focus on those hot button issues necessarily. I hope you'll not only enjoy it, but be enlightened by it. And I'm not going to be enlightened by, by a friend of Epstein talking to a fucking phrenologist. <laughs> like, and I know Murray never argued for phrenology, but like IQ tests are just like they're used in much the same way phrenology was used. At the very least, learn something about the biological basis of diversity. You can watch this podcast ad-free on our Critical Mass Substack site, as always. Or you can watch it on our YouTube channel, the Origins Project YouTube channel. You can listen to it either on our Critical Mass site or on any site that hosts uh, podcasts. However you watch it or listen to it, I hope you'll enjoy it. And I the, the, the nomenclature there would be find it in all the pod places or something like that, any site that hosts podcasts. You'll also consider supporting the foundation primarily by subscribing to the, our Substack site. The funds from that go to supporting the foundation which produces the podcast and makes this possible in any case i hope you enjoy oh, so he's like doing a 501c3 grift on this too probably this, uh, provokes your thinking in one way or another thanks fucking he had to run the galaxy brain intro twice that's how you know somebody's smart right well charles murray thank you so much for agreeing to be uh, clean, clean your room bucko looking forward to uh to our discussion so thanks for coming on uh, so am I looking forward to it? Well, you know, I, I want to, uh, in full disclosure, which I think is important, and you've, you've given a lot of full disclosure in, in, in the book I want to talk about mostly, which is diversity. I want to say that um, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, but I, of course, I first, I first learned of you with the bell curve and all the controversy around the bell curve. And I kind of had a kind of a smug reaction to that. I was kind of happy in a way about the negative responses. I was... Um, I was, uh, at the same time, you know, I was, I was, cons you know, being a natural liberal, I was, you know, concerned about that. But I also had a suspicion about social science being a physicist and therefore a natural skepticism of social science. But at the same time, I have to say, I remember, I mean, at least I think I remember. What? And a lot of these things are just maybe manufactured memories. Some concern, I knew that 
the blanket com- condemnation had to be inappropriate because I and I that was even before that was well before I learned from my own experience in a, in, a, in the public domain that that dude you you're not going to say why you were condemned are you Mr. Kraus anybody doesn't know Lawrence Kraus seen more than once hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein Stephen Pinker was there too and this was after the first trial he's not going to say why he was condemned that most people don't read anything you write before they condemn it <laughs> and um and so yeah. i was i was a little concerned about that and then- yeah all the uh, refutations to the bell curve that were contemporaneous like when it came out the people who wrote uh papers pe- people wrote whole books about his book um none of those people actually read it um I also was, you know, I was interested. I was at Harvard and and and, and around that actually, and had moved after Larry Summers had had his experience. But but I I was impacted by that. And I remember I met him, and he, I happened to get rid of the president of my university, and he he knew of me because of that. And and uh, and and I was concerned about the reaction to his comments. I didn't. Once again, it was only later that I realized how innocuous a number of his comments were, uh, and and I began to rethink some of this. But as I say, we come at this, I'm traditionally, and I mean traditionally, and, and you make a point in your book, you really, it's hard to have labels nowadays, but I'm traditionally much more liberal. I'm probably left. Coming from Canada, by definition, I'm on the left uh, in, in the States, I think. What? And uh, in the sense that I don't view, it, intrinsically, I don't view government as the enemy. Um, and um, But that's not the problem with Charles Murray. I think that's a property of parliamentary systems in any case so so and i you know i really and i knew that you you as we'll talk about for good reason are concerned about to what extent various the implementation of various social programs can really have an effect but nevertheless i grew up in canada with free medical care and lots of social programs so i i had that that bias but things began to change for me oh also i should say the fact that you were at aei also had a bias later on i actually spoke at aei and I don't, I can't remember if we even met there, but I spoke and actually did a dinner at, at this American Enterprise Institute for those people who don't know what it is, which is kind of viewed as a conservative think tank. Um, kind of? And I spoke about science nonsense and, and, um, and non-science um, and religion and had a dinner afterwards. And I, it was an interesting experience, but I was told later that they never wanted me to come back. So um, uh, uh, it was, I thought it was an interesting dialogue, oh. but all of that buys me. And then, and then. Come on, Lawrence, tell us why you got canceled or canceled. And it didn't seem, it didn't seem so canceled to me. If I'm not mistaken. He's, is that, is that some body of water behind him? Things began to change. I taught at Yale and I, I uh, during the height of kind of deconstructionism and postmodernism in, in at least the literature departments where everything was viewed as a social construct. And I began to, of course, you know, recognizing that was nonsense, began to rebel about that. And then over the years as the nonsense of, of sort of diversity and equity programs at universities. Oh, no. Intimately involved with for you know, 40 years at universities, seeing how, how, how they denied reality and and, and, and clearly things became impossible to talk about or, or generally accepted that were nonsense, that there were no sex differences between men and women. Ah, there we go. That, That's the first one. Ding, 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 ding. That all disparities in, in the number of people in programs was due to white privilege or supremacy. 
Not all of the despair. Which having been like this, no, 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 no. Not all of them. It's just a good enough portion of them that we should take a look at that and maybe think about doing things differently. The the situation and observe this. I realize with nonsense, and so, and 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 realizing this this conflating of e uh, misconflating of equality of outcome with equality of opportunity, which are all right. I'm going to be pausing this a lot. You cannot have equality of out of opportunity for one generation without tipping the scales toward equality of outcome for the generation before. You can't. If my parents are lower middle class and your parents are upper upper middle class, we no longer have an equality of opportunity because opportunity is for sale two vastly different things, but are for many people, and nowadays for almost all institutions, in, at least in America and, and in other places, are viewed as the same thing. I began to uh, become no, they're just inextricably linked. Uh, interested in trying to learn about what you were talking about. And then finally, you know, having seen cancel culture in many and written about it now a lot. Um, Why were you canceled again? Why were you canceled again, sir? Became more um, sympathetic with the with your quote-unquote cancellation because of the bell curve so i i want to put all that out there canceled he works at the american enterprise institute he's not canceled in our discussion so um i but i don't want to focus we'll talk about the bell curve a little bit i want to focus and we talked about this beforehand with your book human diversity which is i will say right off uh my work is cut out for me because it's a remarkably comprehensive book it's a remarkable book in many ways and um and, uh, and I'm sure I won't do justice, our discussion won't do justice to it because it's quite detailed. I love books that have data and I'm, that's just the way I am. And, and this is a book full of data. And, uh, and uh, but did you take the, the step to like evaluate the veracity of the data, how the data was collected? <clears throat> did you take any of those steps when you read the book? I mean, we can't all do that all the time, but if you're claiming that you love data, maybe you should spend a little time looking into how the data was collected. Substantiate points which, as you point out, and we'll get to, are not, uh, or should not be subject to debate. And in general, they're generally accepted. Um, and I mean, in legal parlance, you would say at the beginning of a, you know, these points are not subject to, you know, debate. Um, but but I that's think that awful. That's pretty, that's pretty nifty that uh, these two well-to-do older guys get to decide what is and is not up for debate, right? The, bulk, the, the ultimate theme of that book is that social scientists should, be, should actually base social science on biology first. And secondly, that biology is having a heyday, that biology is in a golden era, and therefore it's a prime time for social science to be able to exploit the results of biology. What? Have all of that said in the context of, of what is clearly recognizing we live in times where, where the denial of the results of biology have become a standard part of at least social, well, a lot of social science and a lot of social media. And so um, the book is, is, talks about the three kind of things you don't want to talk at dinner parties about, probably. Gender, race, and class. That is untrue. I have discussions um, lately because of COVID dinner parties are usually like going out to dinner with my family, right? I haven't been going to too many parties because I go out to dinner with my family and my parents are old.
COVID's probably not going to wipe me off the off the off the planet, but my parents are old, so. But we talk about that stuff all the time. We our dinner conversation is current events. We talk about the world around us. We talk about the world we'd like to see, and especially as my parents get older, they talk all they talk a lot about like how their generation could have done more to make the world a better place instead of just gathering wealth. Like that's an amazing thing to hear my conservative father talk about. And he's not really, you know, he's like a, the, he's like a Bay area, moderate conservative hasn't voted for a Republican for president in quite some time, but he's still, you know, to my right. And it's interesting hearing him talk about that, talk about class and, and like privilege and how, how these things, you know, they got a fair shake to a much greater extent than the generations after them. And like listening to my Republican dad talk about that's pretty interesting. So you can talk about those things at a dinner party. It's just that people have to be like kind. If the people at the dinner party are generally kind, you can have discussions about all of those things. And I know going out to a restaurant with three people I've spent most of my life with isn't the same as a dinner party. And, and, uh, and we'll talk about, and really what I want to go through is, is 10 items that you more or less say are are well confirmed and not controversial but they are in modern society so before we get there i've been talking nonstop, and and people who oh it's like the 10 rules for being an asshole often complain i do that um but uh have i misrepresented at least the general context of the book no not at all the the only thing i'd add to that is it was. It's really written because I. I think the social sciences are. Well, two things. <clears throat> One, the social sciences will undergo a revolution, and I'm guilty sometimes of being too optimistic about how long a re- revolution will take. But I will still go ahead and say what I say in the book, which is I think the the next ten years are going to see a lot of the major battles fought. Uh, because the progress in biology is so rapid at this point. And I'm also saying that, look, the social sciences should be embracing that. You talked about a golden age in biology. Social scientists should be relieved that finally we have a chance of being full participants in the scientific project, because we've always been second-class citizens. The economists sort of have pretensions to higher things. Okay, but, really but, still but, uh, but you know, <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not close to what the physicists do. And so we should be really excited, and we aren't. Uh, instead, you have what I think is going to be <clears throat> great turmoil, but I also think at the end of it, and whether it's 10 years or 20 years, doesn't make much difference uh, yeah. in the greater scheme of things. Uh, you will have a social science which is radically different and be attracting radically different people into the field than we have right now. And, I, and what I'm saying, the way I describe it in the book is, this is a progress report. This is where things stand now. And I know that when you hear these, why is it that these rich, powerful guys can never buy a fucking hundred dollar USB mic for their, when they take interviews positions, you're going to say, but that's not true. Everybody knows that it's not true. That's pseudoscience. And I'm saying actually know that the people who are familiar with the literature are going to be yawning and saying, tell me something I don't know. Well, you know, okay, great. In fact, I remember that that specific part, that warning and, and encouragement from the introduction to your book. I, I have to say, before we even get there, that 
I'm I'm surprised by your optimism. <laughs> uh, yeah. In in terms of a time frame, it reminds me in my you know in physics experiments, I was involved in proposing things in the 1980s that still haven't been completed. But at the time, I thought it'll all be solved in 10 years. I I I I I guess my well, we can talk about this at the end. But I my natural t- inclination right now, and my what I tell all my friends is that I think it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. But we'll see. Um, well, naturally, I have some thoughts since the book was written that we can get to. Yeah. Good. Oh, that'd be great. Well, let's try and get to it. Um, but before we get to it, uh, this is an origins podcast. And I think it's important to, to preface some of this. And I was, it was interesting to me as I tried to learn about your life. So I want to ask some questions about your life. Um, you grew up in Iowa. Um, and, um, and you used to hang around, ju- I re- read juvenile delinquents and and um and and such and um but your father was an uh, an executive for maytag um oh his father was an executive you don't say i bet he thinks that his father was an executive at maytag because his father had them good genes mother did i i I didn't learn i was going to ask housewife she was a housewife okay and you were obviously ended up um being interested in well be, being interested in ideas and you know ultimately you know go, going to harvard but isn't everybody interested in ideas them provide an influence speaking of i know that you've talked about in the book in fact that sort of the parental influences are not as great as one thinks but nevertheless uh who did either of them uh, sort of provide an inspiration for what eventually was going to study political science so i'm wondering i wondered to know where that came about that interest well, the short answer is uh, my father was a great role model for a, a boy, you know, modest. And it, he was sort of the way that men were supposed to be. He was a very gentle man uh, in the true sense of that word. Well, that's nice. But, you know, ironclad integrity. He didn't go to college because his he had to support his uh, sisters and his parents uh, and uh, he still worked his way. I don't know if you get to be an executive at a big company by being gentle or having rock solid integrity. To be the middle manager at uh, Maytag. My mother was a force of nature. Uh, she was a child of a broken marriage, which was not usual in the 1910s when that yeah. happened. Uh, she worked her way through a little college called Culver Stockton. And she got a college education all on her own. Oh. Uh, she was a feminist before there were feminists. And uh, and she was also, like my father, rock-like integrity and sort of a no exceptions demand of uh, right behavior. And when I disappointed her in that, I remember once she jumped on me uh, for reasons I won't go into uh, when I was 17 years old. And I came out of that experience saying, actually, even when you're 17 years old, your mother can still cow you. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I mean, he's not wrong there. Even at 45 years old, if my mom was mad at me, I'd probably be cowering. I haven't done much to piss her off, though, since in, in adulthood. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to go. I want it's. It's. Uh, I've never talked about them before publicly, and I've. But uh, but it wasn't that they had to inspire me to be interested. I was. 
I wasn't a child prodigy, but you know, all the standardized tests, uh, I was in the top 10th, the top percentile, that sort of thing. And That's because your parents were rich, I was just interested in everything and read everything and voluminously. Did and, they read? Uh, uh, like if my parents weren't like a chemist and an engineer, I probably wouldn't have done very well on standardized testing, not because I got the chemist and engineer genes, but because being a chemist and an engineer gives a family money. I'm, uh, did, I mean, it's interesting to me that of the two parents, your mother had gone to college and your father hadn't. Right. But in terms of encouraging reading, uh, did your mother or did it just a natural interest or do you remember? Well, the, she, I remember that she read to me, you know, uh, and uh, which I enjoyed thoroughly. But uh, she stopped doing that when I think we were on Huckleberry Finn and she found out that I'd already read two chapters ahead, but I enjoyed listening to her. <laughs> she said, okay, you can read it yourself now. But uh, yeah, so they encouraged that. It was a little it, weird reading to your eight-year-old kid, but okay. Very good environment for a kid who was smart in an mm -hmm. IQ sense. Uh, in an IQ sense. Uh, because they let me you know, live at the local Carnegie library. Yeah, basically. sure. After and it was great I to have a library, a great library nearby. You were sm Newton, Iowa. I, I don't know if I've been to Newton, Iowa. I've been in a lot of places in Iowa, but nah, uh, yeah. it's a small town, small town, 15,000, but it had a library and, and, and such. Um, did, um, now you eventually, we'll, we'll get to getting to Harvard in a second, but you, 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 Stu did you study political science as an undergraduate as well as a uh, graduate student ultimately? No, Russian history. Oh, oh history. Russian that's right. Russian, Russian history. history. So yeah. you, you would decide early. I always wonder why people don't do science. So I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I, uh, where, where, it's where, interesting. Mm -hmm. Because my visual spatial skills uh, charitably can be called pedestrian. <laughs> okay. And uh, so when I was in physics, in high school, just high school physics, mm -hmm. I didn't do particularly well in it. The the uh, the, the ma mathematics was not a language that came naturally to me, and still doesn't. And so, but he's the guy that's going to crunch the numbers and use the sign. Use the see, like <clears throat> it's kind of contradictory here. Wasn't that I wasn't interested in science for any substantive reasons, but I didn't gravitate to it because it did not come easily to me. Whereas things involving history and literature and the rest of that, that was all easy. And I think it's natural for somebody to go with their strengths. Well, yeah, in fact, you talk about that as a, a you legitimize that. It was one of the points in, in, in the latter part of the book, is it? Or actually in the early part of the book, when one talks about vocations uh, that people tend to do what they like and it's not Which too surprising i mean it's you know it's, it shouldn't be contentious to suggest that although it is in in a context which we'll get to but it's certainly impact on you so you you were you enjoyed reading and the and and history and obviously history and you studied history and uh you and you said the and i guess i'm interested in your take back and forth on the sats which 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 comes up in this book a little bit but also it's well known that you um said the SATs helped you get out of Newton and get to Harvard because the right. standardized tests. But later on, you sort of um, argued that they were not, um, that universities shouldn't use them because of a variety of social changes. So you want to talk about that for a second? And I don't know if you've changed that view back again or not. 
No, no. I, what I said in the article, uh, Lawrence, was uh, I, this was an article in the AEI magazine. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry you didn't have a better experience at AEI. Usually people. Well, I loved better. it. I thought it went really well. It was only afterwards. That, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, a, a, anyway the, uh, the, the argument was this, and I had to be persuaded by data because I didn't want to believe the data. This was a big California study that was done in the early 2000s. And they concluded that achievement tests do just as good a job, even in schools for disadvantaged kids, as the SAT. And I was saying, that's really hard to believe, you know, because the SAT, insofar as even though it's been bastardized in the last 25 years, still is a, is a better measure of G, general intelligence, than, than achievement tests. But this California study was very rigorous. And, and also, I'm unhappy with the SAT because it has taken on all this cultural baggage. Mm -hmm. And so instead of being this uh, way for a kid from a poor home to be able to raise his hand yeah. and get some attention and say, hey, I, I should be paid attention to, it's become this thing that the kids who get high scores from upper middle class homes flaunt as, a, you know, as evidence of their wonderfulness. And if the achievement tests do just as well, achievement tests don't carry a lot of that cultural baggage. So I wanted to replace the SAT with achievement tests. I didn't want to get rid of standardized tests. Yeah, no, that's important because, it's, I mean, that's what this is. Uh, as you know, there's a huge movement to get rid of standardized testing standard. as, as somehow racist. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I couldn't have imagined. Racist, Larry, Lawrence. Standardized testing in its current form tends to certainly favor <clears throat> those who are of a higher socioeconomic class and because socioeconomic socioeconomic class is correlated with race in the united states you know for whatever reason um there's are people who want to get rid of it there are also people who are trying to make better standardized tests doesn't matter anyway yeah it's racist in the following sense uh it is taking away well, not so much racist as kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. It's taking away from them the best tool for identifying them. And that is, that's a crime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Absolutely. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've, I, I go back and forth. I, I, since I went up, grew up in Canada, I didn't take SATs. I think I must have taken some other tests, but universities didn't use them in Canada. It was much less competitive to go to university there than it is in the States, uh, certainly now. Um, but having it's funny because in physics, um, I've taught at a lot of different schools, uh, elite Ivy League schools and other research universities. And, and it's funny, at least at the graduate level, um, beyond a certain threshold, at least, uh, of competence. Uh, I've, I've always found that, uh, that, the, uh, that it's very, that um, the scores really didn't correlate with how well they, people would do, in, in, at least in the, in the, say, the graduate entrance exams. Um, and, uh, and I've always kind of felt, been more <laughs> taken with the idea of random acceptance. Because um, even at, you know, when I left Yale and, and, and moved to Case Western, I, I've, and then at, even at, in Arizona, I, I didn't find, we're going to talk about means of distributions, but I didn't find the mean very that different. And they, at the extremes, there were, there, you know, there were, there were huge differences. But most of the students 
Um, I've, I haven't found that many differences, and maybe because they're all self-selected middle-class students, I don't know. Well, the numbers on this, there are a lot of numbers. And what you're dealing with is truncation of range yeah, you know, when, yeah. In, your, in your experience. So if you say, is there any evidence that there is a threshold beyond which increments in measured cognitive ability don't make a difference in performance, the answer is no. Uh, that includes the very high end. I, I used to argue with Dick Hernstein about this because I said, look, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I know some kids that had stratospheric IQs and I wouldn't trust them <laughs> to make any kind of a common sense decision. Uh -huh. And they were really pretty weird. And, and Dick's Well, that's probably because they were the kinds of people at Harvard that would tell you what their IQ was. It wasn't necessarily because they had high intelligence because they're the, they're weird because it's weird to tell everybody that you have a high IQ. It's weird. If somebody told me they had a high IQ, I would go talk to someone else. Uh, I could take you to the admissions office and pull the folders of another dozen kids that were every bit as smart uh, in terms of cognitive ability, but they were also had good social skills, and so you didn't notice them. Uh, <laughs> it's not the case. And, and he had... So he did, he had the data on his side, which was usually true with Dick Einstein. I see. Well, okay. I don't want to get hung up, but it's interesting to me to see it. Um, you went you went to the Peace Corps after you in between undergraduate and graduate school, and and I don't know if that affect well if that affected your decision to go into political science. Uh, that transition, maybe we could talk about that for a little bit. I want I do want to get to the book, but I'm intrigued by that. Well, yeah, it's. I can go on a narrative for 20 minutes in that, but I won't. Uh, here's the here's the Cliff Notes version. I went into Peace Corps because I, from the very beginning, I didn't want to go directly to graduate school. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't like the idea. And instead, I also wanted to go see the world. And sure. uh, Peace Corps is a good way to do that. And when I was in Peace Corps, and then after I got out of Peace Corps, I stayed in Thailand because at that time, I was married to a Thai woman who had been a Fulbright scholar in the States, and she had an obligation to work off at a local university. So I stayed, and I did research projects. Uh, and contrary to what the Southern Poverty Law Center says, these were not uh, covert operating. They, they were research into how to win the hearts and minds of the villagers yeah. and so forth. Anyway. Wait, what? Why do you have to win the hearts and minds of the villagers in a place that you're just visiting? That's fucking crazy. A couple of years of doing that, I was convinced that my insights into how Thai villages work were way better than those of the anthropologists I was reading. Whoa. Why? Like, that's an insane thing to believe about yourself, that you're just better than, than anthropologists at understanding how, like, cultures and societies function. You might know the intricacies of a specific village that you live in better than some uh, anthropologist who's never lived there, sure. But that's like different than saying that you know more about how these villages work than an anthropologist. That's a pretty bold statement. You know, they had their narrative and their anecdotes, and I had my narrative and my anecdotes, and I wanted to be able to prove I was sure. right and they were wrong. And so I got interested in quantitative methods. And I found I, I'm not good at 
learning math, you know, motivating theorems. I'm not good in all sorts of the more abstract things. It turns out I'm pretty good at applying statistical findings. Uh, it certainly seems that way when one reads one. Yeah, no, this, this is what I'm good at. And, and, uh, and so I've, I, I pursued that on my own. And then I decided to apply to MIT because uh, they had one of the best programs in quantitative social science. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take every quantitative uh, statistical course known to MIT. And that's pretty much what I tried to do when I got there. That's the advantage of MIT. I always felt, and you know, I know people in the humanities and social sciences at MIT, and I've always admired, admired that quantitative aspect. I remember it was a big jump when I went from across down the river from MIT to Harvard to see that change a little bit. Um, yep. Now, yeah, but you you did, you know. Actually, I was I was amused reading that your wife, um, your your next wife, your the wife who's a Quaker, by the way, from Newton, Iowa, did that mean, when the minute I saw that, I thought, did you know each other as, as, as children, or was that just a fluke? Two and a half blocks away from each other. Our parents were good friends. I was six years older than she, so I had no interest in her whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. At that age, no. 18 and 12, yeah, <laughs> which yeah, just are interested. Yeah. And we reconnected uh, when we were both in our 30s. That's and lovely. That's a lovely together. story. That's great. And, and, and I, I think, you know, she was, I, I, this is one of the things, cause I've, I've heard from people who I know what a nice man you are. Let me put it that way. And, and, uh, and I was amused, but her reaction was, was, I, I think the same as a lot of other people must be about you, which is, she said, you know, she looked at your conservative reading list and was, a, you know, and was sort of turned off by it, but ultimately had a hard time reconciling that with the deep decency you had as a human being. And I thought that was a beautiful, a beautiful combination. And, um, well, and I just, and, and everything, uh, you know, uh, that, that I can just reading you, I, 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 I can see both. And I think that's really kind of a nice combination. So I'm, I'm happy that has worked out, but I will just say that she, uh, we were courting when I was working on losing ground. And so she began her role as editor. She has oh. edited everything I published. Oh, wow. And, uh, she's Losing Ground. That's the name of the, the other one by him I read. I read uh, Bell Curve and Losing Ground. Brilliant editor. And, but as she was doing, she was still a standard academic liberal when she yeah. was uh, doing this. And, and sometimes she caught herself saying, I'm helping this guy write better positions that uh, I'm supposed to find horrific that is the that is that is the best thing i mean that's that's why i love that that's why i want these conversations it's that kind of that's what so should be so wonderful about academia in general exactly. and is completely missing now and and that's yep. what depresses me and and it's important for me to have conversations across the, well for me personally as an individual but also to try and promote these discussions but there's no there's no points of disagreement between the two of you what do you mean you were he almost said like across the aisle or whatever there's not going to be a single point of disagreement between these two in this entire exchange. Um, you don't have to agree with someone to have an interesting discussion. And, and, and that's wonderful that and it's wonderful that your relationship survived that and has continued to survive that she's, I understand a Quaker that may make um, some, some, uh, some uh, relevance there. And, and the last thing I want to say, because I want to come back to this at the end of the discussion, five hours from now, no, anyway, at the end of the discussion, um, you're you described yourself as an agnostic you know sort of a, a christian wannabe but you really can't a christian you know, wannabe is that still true 
Yeah. Oh no. I've well, yeah, in a way. Um, I mean, I've evolved uh, over the last 15 years, a lot under my wife's influence and also the people I've met through her and also through other people. So I'm afraid you would find me disturbingly uh, shaky in my unbelief uh, if we talked about it longer. Uh, I'm still filled with uncertainties about all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been tending toward, uh, being religious and specifically Christian. Well, you know, it, it, as Fox Muldar said in the, in the X, his name is Fox Mulder. We all want to believe. And so I think it's understandable. And I was going to say, I'll help you in, in your, in, get over your shakiness, but I, I, but I'm not a proselytizing atheist in fact, but uh, I think, uh, one thing I will point out is I edited a book. I, no, I didn't edit. I actually wrote the preface for an old book that was re coming out about atheism. And it made a point which, which I'd never thought of before, which is agnosticism is atheism. If, if you take, if you take atheism generally saying is, well, you're not willing to, uh, to not doubt <laughs> in a sense, you're not willing to, you don't find the arguments convincing enough to say, yeah, I quote unquote believe. Which is what agnostic is that that's just a one form of atheism but anyway it doesn't really matter i think that it's important that we have questions but i can understand um the attraction of at least the the, the certainly the quaker aspect of christianity anyway we'll come back to that because what? i think it's um <clears throat> you end your book in, in, in discussing that maybe you don't remember you edited the book but n not really but it, i picked up on it uh, on on the need to um well, when we get to when we get to the uh, the goals of how to have a good society, but let's 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 get to the book. But I think that all of that was fascinating for me anyway, and I, and I was very happy that you revealed some at least one thing that you'd never said before. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, okay. So human diversity is a book about literally uh, the nature of human diversity as it relates primarily to those three conceptual areas of gender, um, class, uh, race, and class. Wait, and, um, one of those things is not like the other, at least according to these two people, right? Like race and gender, according to these two people, are going to be like biological imperatives. And class, according to these two people, is not like those things. I would suggest that all three are largely socially constructed. But in their view, one of those things is not like the other, you know? By by talking about the the, the fact that um, uh, on university campuses, you can't really um, uh, incorporate biology into social science without being inconspicuous. That the the and I'm intrigued. But you said the price can be protest by students, denial of tenure, tenure track employment for post. Sorry, denial of tenure track employment for postdocs, denial of tenure for assistant professors, or reprimands from the university administrators. You're being very tame. It actually includes even more than that. You can now be. You can now have your tenure tenure revoked. Tenure is no longer what it used to be. And I know of a number of examples that I've written about in the Wall Street Journal elsewhere, people where people um, basically who who um, who disagree are, are uh, they're, free, they're they're removed from tenure. No, no, no. It's because of what they're saying and doing, Mr. Krause. They're, when you go say or do something, that's not a belief. Those are actions. People are having these happen because of their behavior. 
Is is it always fair? Prob no, certainly not always fair. But it's not just because of their belief. Gotten more extreme, I think. Than it's, it's it's awful. Now here are let let me read. Maybe it's probably best to read the ten uh, items that are that are not in dispute. If if I if I was going to be a judge, uh oh, that, um, that or that you, you would argue are not in dispute. Why didn't he do fourteen? Not in dispute. Yeah. yeah. One, sex differences in personality are consistent worldwide and tend to widen in more gender egalitarian cultures. Two, on average, females worldwide have advantages in verbal ability and social cognition, while males have advantages in visuospatial abilities and the extremes of mathematical ability. Three, on average, women worldwide are, are more attracted to vocations centered on people and men to vocations centered on things. But his argument isn't that this is how it shakes out, you know, for whatever reason, his argument here is these are like, like hardwired into us or to some extent hardwired into us. And I think the differences between the, the, the men and women and the, 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 the jobs they choose, I, I think it's be, it'd be hard to argue that we haven't completely constructed that as a society. Just think about doctors versus nurses. Historically, doctors were men, women were nurses, right? <clears throat> Like, why would that be? Is there a fucking reason for that? I mean, there is. It's the patriarchy. The doctor's the higher up in the, the, the pecking order at the hospital, right? Though not for nothing, nurses year after year after year after year are the most trusted profession in the United States. And when you, if you go to a hospital or whatever, you're going to spend a lot more time with nurses than with doctors. Already I, I can hear listeners screaming, but anyway... Um, four, many sex differences in the brain are coordinated with sexual differences in personality, abilities, and social behavior. Five, human populations are genetically distinctive in ways that correspond to self-identified race and ethnicity. Six, but which way is the car going on that? Come on. Evolutionary selection pressures since humans left Africa have been extensive and mostly local. Seven, Continental population differences and variants associated with personality, abilities, and social behavior are common. Eight, the shared environment usually plays a minor role in explaining personality, ability, and social behavior. Nine, class structure is importantly based on differences in abilities that have substantial genetic component, that have a substantial genetic component. And 10, outside interventions are inherently constrained in the effects they can have on personality, abilities, and social behavior. So, so I want to go through those one by one. I've highlighted for myself some quotes, but I want to give you a chance to, well, an opportunity to to elaborate. Um, obviously, as I say, we can't do justice because the mo most of this is trying to argue that there's substantial data supporting these things, and now we can we can assert that on this on this program, but we can't. Uh, 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 you, there may be examples, but it'd be hard to adequately. Uh, 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 reproduce the data that you have there. Um, but, but you do recognizing that these 10 things, as you point out, will, but we don't, we can't, well, there's no, there's not like a broad consensus about those 10 things. <coughs> Surprised you didn't go with 14. Like I said, a minute ago, people will have order stop reading the book or they'll just say, um, you know, if they're experts, we knew these things. You do, you do feel the need right away to say, let me say it explicitly that I reject claims that groups of people be they sexes or races or classes, 
can be ranked from superior to inferior. I reject claims that differences among groups have any relevance to human worth or dignity. And so um, I think, you know, that's a disclaimer. I think given. But you just kind of have to take him at his word when he says that. And even if he does believe that, then you'd think he'd be a little more introspective about the like the historical use of his work by fucking racists. The, the, um, the bad rap you have that you had to do. But let's begin um, with the sex differences, with, with gender. Sex differences and personality consistent worldwide tend to widen more gender uh, egalitarian cultures. Um, your basis for this first is with evolution, which I, I, I resonated with, the fact that you know evolution leads to sex differences in tribes. First of all, physiologically, men are larger, faster, greater bo- upper body strength. Females are capable of gestation and lactation. And given such differences, certain divisions of labor were natural. And so, so that, that was an initiation of biology being, having an impact on, on, uh, on, uh, uh, on well, well, personality. Can I, actually, and, and, mm-hmm. can I correct something here? Sure, um, sure. Yeah, if you're asking, do I think that evolutionary psychology it plays, it should play a huge role in all of this? The answer is yes. But that's not surprising. Doing the the work on the book. If I I see that somebody's like an evolutionary psychologist on Twitter, I just assume that they're a fucking racist. That every time you invoke uh, an evolutionary psychological explanation, uh, that the retort, oh, this is a just so story that these reactionaries have made up to justify the patriarchy and so forth, they were dismayingly effective. Mm-hmm. And so I explicitly say, were they effective because in some cases it's true and people were maybe doing that without even knowing it. Like you, <clears throat> not everyone who makes these kinds of arguments is like, I am trying to prop up a hierarchy, right? Like people do things to prop up hierarchies all the time that, and they're unaware of it. And a lot, most, a lot of those people are good people who aren't themselves like generally racially biased or biased against sex and gender. They just, accidentally and accidentally is a weird word i know that but i don't i don't i don't have a better word for it they just you know accidentally prop up systems of control and systems of inequality i'm not going to talk about evolutionary biology yeah. i'm going to talk about because of that very reason i'm going to focus on what we know about what is whatever the sources of the causes of that may be so i agree with what you just said about the role of evolution but that's not yeah, I know. In fact, I'm glad you, you jumped in because you do okay. say that explicitly that that uh, and you do. And what you also say in the end of the book is that you think that's a field that's going to blossom because of the yeah. ability to uh, to because of improvements in genetics, primarily that evolutionary psychology will be able to be correlated with genetic factors in a way that in, in your in your hope will bloom greatly in the next 10 to 20 years. OK, so. Um, uh, so you give a framework for thinking about sex, sex differences, and um, um, uh, um, uh, and and, and of course talk about difference between gender and sex. Sorry, go on. Uh, let me just give a maybe the, the way to do this is let's go through each of the ten. Mm-hmm. But for some of them, I will try to be real brief because a I can't go through all the evidence for it. I can summarize quickly why I think we can dispose of it. In the case of the first proposition, that that these these differences in personality and so forth are found worldwide, and they tend to widen 
in the most uh, uh, socially and, and uh, gender egalitarian countries. But there's a difference between like the law versus like how society views gender. That's a case of we have replication after replication. Point number one. I think I had three or four at the time I was writing the book. There have been more that have come out since then. Point number two is there are no countervailing studies out there of similar quality, remotely similar quality, that find the opposite, a narrowing of these differences. And point number three is that in the current environment, this is an unwelcome finding. So you know very well that an awful lot of the scholars who went into this uh, went into it expecting to find that the differences narrow in more gender egalitarian societies probably were not happy to find that they didn't. Bless their hearts, they went ahead and published the data anyway. But this leaves out of the, the equation things like the men's rights movement and like the reactionary pushback essentially to more gender equal legal structures in our societies right like you this is kind of dumb this is super dumb like you know there's always going to be things like the men's rights movement where when a society like in its legal structures and even in its business structure starts to make some progress on something you're going to have the people who were generally benefiting from that structure having a little less benefit as a result of their identity. And some of them are going to get pissed off and push back. Uh, so we're, we're, we're talking about a finding that's extremely consistent and uh, has lots of replications and a sort of hostile testimony. But let me give a real quick example of why it works that way. Okay. Why it can be this, uh, that uh, differences in let's say vocational preferences uh, are more gender typical in Sweden than mm -hmm. they are in Pakistan. And this may be intuitively understandable. If you are a woman who is capable of being an engineer in Pakistan, you are capable of taking up a profession that pays pretty well. And there are not that many, you don't have an abundance of opportunities if you're a woman in Pakistan to get a job that has good pay. So you may not want particularly to be an engineer, but the incentives to do so are compelling. If you are that same woman with exactly that same skill set in Sweden, uh, you do have abundant choices. And so you don't have to go with the one or two that will make a decent income for you. You can go with a wide variety of choices and you can afford to do what you want to do. And so the implication is that. So, so. Another way to look at this is <clears throat> if the economics aren't pushing you in one direction, maybe the thing pushing you in a direction for your career or whatever is just going to be like societal pressure and societal expectations of uh, men and women. And so maybe that becomes more powerful in a place with more economic, um, more economic opportunities for different kinds of people. Just because the economic opportunities are there for different kinds of people doesn't mean that the societal pressure and that the the sort of societal biases aren't going to have an impact on you. And I think that you might be able to argue that they have more of an impact on you because the economic pressure isn't as great. The reason that the differences widen in some respects is because in the more gender egalitarian countries, 
people have greater freedom, uh, have more latitude to do what comes naturally. I will just interject a little caveat to that, 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 though, just to let people know how interesting this is. A great deal of what accounts for the widening differences is, is men, not women. That in some ways, men show more tendency to have gender-typical choices uh, in more gender-egalitarian countries, which I find very interesting, and I don't have a quick, snappy explanation for that. Societal pressure, societal expectations, those probably loom larger if it's not the fuck, if, you don't, if you're not dealing with uh, so much financial stress. Something's going to push you in some direction, and it might just be what your community believes are typical roles of men and women. You know, it's always nice to find something that surprises one. That's why I like doing physics. But, but uh, okay, let's let's parse this a little bit. Um, okay, that's a summary, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's important. I, I think it's important. If you don't, we won't do it. But but to stress when one is talking about these studies, one's talking about statistics, and to try and and when one looks at the analyses and the studies that have been done one refers to things like effect size and i you know i I think for people wondering how you one can make those statements quantitatively it might be useful for you to spend a few minutes talking about distributions and effect size i think it's probably worthwhile and because it also gets to a central central source of arguments about the argument about the magnitude of gender differences Mm -hmm. Uh, effect sizes are usually fairly small one of the things effect size means uh let's say that you have uh, uh the effect of nutrition on height uh yes it does have an effect but uh it's not huge it's it's relatively small in any one generation but it's not just nutrition if you're food insecure you're probably not going to have um medical care at least not in the united states so it's not just one thing and that's true of, of most social phenomena. Let, let, things- let me interrupt you for one second, only maybe because I like to think mathematically, but, I want, but it's important since, and maybe it's too bell curvish, but, but, um, but to measure it, basically, one is looking at two, dist- everything is a distribution. People are distributed, and normally by some normal curve, which has a peak somewhere. And, and generally what the studies are doing are looking at the distributions, and they're always outliers in both directions for men, women, and, and everything else, is looking at the difference uh, uh, of the, between the two peaks divided by the width of the distribution. If the, clearly, if, the, if they're, you're going you're gonna to draw it. Oh, I can't. Uh, I can't uh, can you no, see no, this? No, I'm seeing the top uh, of your Okay, book. never mind. Uh, no, it's this, all right, this, but this, let this, me, this, I, I can just say it. So if, if two distributions are really narrow, and they're just and, and they're far and the peaks are far apart. It's clearly the case. If the if the peaks are the same distance apart, but the distributions are very wide, then you might argue you can't really distinguish them. So effect size is really the distance between those peaks divided by the width of the distribution. So one can heuristically. So I, I just want. I think it's important because that's a central factor in a lot of the analyses that that you talk about, and it's a it's a reasonable way of trying to understand if statistically. What you're seeing is 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 visible. Uh, I I used to a friend of mine, I mean, a physicist, used to say that if if you really needed complex statistics to see differences, then they probably weren't there. 
but but it, with effect size, if you if you can, if it's basically if you can see it, it's there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing that I've, I've I've spent 25 years trying to get people to understand overlapping distributions. Sure. The other aspect of it is uh, not only is the distance between the two two peaks oftentimes small, what that means is that there's a great deal of overlap. Yeah. So you do not have people separated into binary camps. One other quick point, though, and this is where I have taken a side in a very contentious uh, topic. If you take each you know, personality, characteristic, and cognitive ability and social behavior separately and say, what are the effect sizes between men and women? The answer is most of them are, are small. And those who say that it's wrong to think that these differences are a big deal like to deal with them one at a time. And another set of scholars say, no, you can't do that, that if you have uh, 15 personality characteristics, what you're interested in is a profile. And so each of the individual effect sizes can be small, but there are ways of aggregating those and you aggregate them and uh, you've got an important difference. I am. He's describing intersectionality, but I bet he's not a fan of intersectionality. Persuaded that you cannot look at these things separately if they are conceptually related as they are conceptually related. So yeah, of course, one has to, and and one sees this in fields like physics, where one can do, of course, statistics much easier, more easily. You have to worry about the correlations between them. Clearly, if yeah. two things are completely correlated, you can't just add them because they're basically saying, telling you well, the same thing. Yeah. So one has to look for independence and correlations, and 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 all these things are are carefully accounted for if you do the statistics properly. But but it's really important to, if you're aggregating to say, are these 15 factors independent or are they all really the same thing? And, yeah. but, but, but there are techniques for doing that. Yeah, sure, exactly. And you talk about it uh, in, 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 in the book, and that's one of the many things we won't, we won't get to. One of the things you said before we get on to, you know, there's personality differences, and you've sort of said that, and I'd, li I'd really like to get to the, the um, verbal and mathematical and, and vocational differences, because that's kind of really a hot topic and one that, that Let's do that. I've written about. Um, but I will, I, I can't help but giving one quote about a, day, a, a, a fact about sex difference of personality that I didn't know that, so I want to say it that I read in your book, because for other people, the most dramatic example of a finding from infancy, which led to co considerable publicity, was a 2002 study presenting evidence that newborn girls no more than two days old after birth showed stronger interest in a human face, while the newborn boys showed stronger interest in a mechanical mobile. It's a, it's a single unreplicated study with a sample of 102. Not proof to take the bank, but it's fine. No, that, <clears> it's basically study. nothing. It's sample size of 102 non-replicated non, non study? Ain't shit. ...to see more and more studies that are looking at these things um, and, and finding, um, um, you know, as you say, with 102 kids, it's not, it's not uh, anything to fit it, but it's intriguing to me. And I, and yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and the reason I don't said, don't take that to the bank, but you have, a, but that's dramatic because it's only, you know, they're just a day or two old, but you also have a lot of studies that are with children a month or two old. Uh, and so, so the chance for the environment to be accounting for things is still quite limited. So once again, we're looking at a pattern of results that are consistent. 
Okay, let's 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 talk to the about the about the neural functioning, neurocognitive functioning, visuospatial and math. I mean, this is the the hot topic area. This is the area that got Larry Summers fired and a long time ago, or at least uh, just removed. I don't well, maybe fired is the right way to say it. Um, so, and and it's an area of interest to me because lately, when seeing the the these requirements in in STEM fields that that um, that are, are, are suggesting um, 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 uh, forced requirements that, that seem, that seem uh, to me, and I've written to be not only ridiculous, but harmful. And, um, and, and so let's go right to math uh, first, before we go to visual spatial. And you say, um, um, uh, and you say it's one of the cases in which data are plentiful and the story doesn't vary, at least within the United States. Sex differences in mathematics become progressively larger as the sample becomes more selective and the type of math skill becomes more advanced. And, uh, and your examples here were fascinating to me. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, partly you have a difference in male and female uh, variants. Um, so that even if the mean is relatively close in terms of, of uh, math tests, that you have more males at the you know, at the low end, but you also have more males at the high end. And the further out you get, the greater the disproportion becomes. So what becomes a minor difference at the means uh, is important because you have radically different proportions of males and females who are out at the far end. How do we know that's true, particularly uh, given that in order to do confident work at the Foreign distributions need really big sample sizes. Sure. But, but this is a case where we do have that in the form of this, you know, uh, U.S. math competition, the name of which I'm forgetting, but it's a very difficult, uh, it's sort of like the SAT math on steroids. And, uh, and, and the, the male-female differences in that are very large. And you say, the well, MC12, I think you call it. A, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so mm -hmm. the sample, we have a number of samples with reasonably large samples, uh, sizes. Uh, you still have to worry about some self-selection problems. You know, yeah. Might it be that women are less interested in taking that test because of social pressures not to, uh, you know, in math. Uh, so I'm not saying those are dispositive. I'm saying they're consistent across measures. But I'll tell you what I find. But the th things that are a result of your environment <clears throat> and th that, in that environment being a patriarchy, those can be consistent and not be indicative of any sort of biological differences that like relate to math performance. Um, if you, if, if we're segueing into vocational choices yeah, and the really fascinating data there is the, the, the data set for the uh, study of mathematically precocious youth. Uh, I found, I found that data problem. remarkable. So I was going to get there, but we can jump there now. Yeah. Okay. Let's well, go there. If we're going to get through all 10, I think we've got to move briskly. Oh yeah. Well, 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 yeah, but I wanted to go through. Yeah. I, I plan to more, more intensively do the beginning and, 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 and more generally towards the end, but it's okay. We're, okay. I want, I want to briskly go, but I, I do want to, before I was actually going to go right there, but I did want to, one thing that I think is important that you point out is that there are other areas where they're the same, 
uh, effect size differences that, that are working the other direction, that women in, in, have better spa uh, social cognition and, um, and, um, uh, and, uh, and I think verbal abilities. But, uh, so, so, that, so there are similar tests that you can perform for that? Yeah, and there, well, there's, there's uh, the neurocognitive tests of the, Penn, the University of Pennsylvania cohort, where uh, they have a battery of tests where you have very interesting different profiles for men and women, but there is no way in which you can look at those profiles and say, oh, guys are smarter than gals or, or vice versa, because of you've got these different strengths. And when we get to advances in neuroscience, the nice conjunction is that they're making progress in understanding why these things uh, exist. Is neuroscience saying, I don't think, neuro, I don't think the field of neuroscience has like really <clears throat> makes a claim about this kind of stuff. Again, our, our studies that can be criticized and I'm not using as the basis for my conclusions, mm -hmm. but there's a test called uh, reading the mind in the eyes. And I'm going to, I'm going to mention all of these different studies that say that I'm right. But of course, none of these are the basis for my conclusions. It's kind of weaselly, ain't it? I think it's kind of weaselly. This of a set of photographs of just a rectangle of the eyes uh, and this is about all you see. And you're supposed to identify from multiple choice what that person's emotions are and so forth. And I took the test. Uh -huh. And I, I took I, the I, test. And, I, and I, I took it very seriously. And I spent time on it. I stared at them. Uh, okay, I've been saying before my IQ is above average. My score on reading the mind in the eyes was precisely average for males okay and uh it's lower than the 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 one for females so you know you have the stereotype of women who and this is the kind of thing oh women are intuitive and so mm -hmm. forth or intuitive which the feminists are very unhappy about because uh you know the, the, the men are rational and have intellectual power but women have this kind of cute intuition no it's not that women observe what's going on in the world around them and they can decode information and some things better than, than men can decode it. And uh, there's a lot of consistent data to that. Effect. Oh, sure. I, and anecdotal. I certainly and by the way, there's lots of uses. So wait a minute. <clears throat> the fact that a woman is far more likely to be, for example, sexually assaulted than a man might be, might factor into this, right? The, societal pressure might <clears throat> cause women to be kind of more observant, especially of men because you know, you got to read the room. If you're in an unfamiliar place, if you're a woman, maybe and figure out if it's safe, if you're safe there, whereas men, we, of course our safety is important too, but we're not, we're not socialized to be so worried about it. And for maybe for good reason, we should be, maybe we should be socializing men to be more concerned with this, making other people feel safe. I don't know the answer, but this thing he's talking about with, he's just calling it like a woman's intuition and he's just trying to like make it science, but it's just, uh, 
it's like a like a colloquialism about women's intuition and there could be all kinds of societal reasons why why women are basically better at reading the room and seeing who in the room is an aggressive type of person or whatever and sentimental ones too it means for example women may very well be better interrogators in criminal situations yeah, that sure. men are because they're picking up on things that men don't pick up on can, uh, there are a wide variety of applications of these social cognition skills yeah no it's it's uh by the way did your wife take the test uh, did you did, did she did you, she... you know i never got her to take it yeah. she's a quaker she doesn't believe in tests okay uh, my but, well i might as well fess up she scores higher on all kinds of standards yeah tests. sure okay <laughs> good good then good excellent um okay but now we'll get, let's get to the vocational part of this because it it really resonates with something that 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 is very a very important social issue for me anyway for, in academia which is this issue of diversity and you started by saying people generally enjoy things they're good at like you talked about why you went to history they also like the experience of being good at what they do a fundamental truth about the nature of human enjoyment that goes back to aristotle and and when it comes we're living in times where there there is there are differences between the proportion in a, not just in gender but in race in of 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 individuals in university departments and background demographics and and what what we're told without any evidence without any studies without any supporting empirical data is that that's due to racism or systemic racism and um without any empirical what the fuck just no. the other side just has no data. It's feels over reels. The entire other side of this argument is feels over reels. That's just what he said. Like, I don't think that about people who disagree with me. That's an insane thing to think about people who disagree with you is that they, there's no information on their side of the argument. It's, it's a bonkers thing to just like make that blanket statement. You make the point very clearly at the beginning that more than a century after legal restrictions on women's vocations were lifted, and a half century since gender discrimination and hiring promotion of firing were outlawed, large disparities continue to exist in university educations that young men and women attain the jobs and the jobs they take. And we'll see that if the, the disparities go in two different directions, in different directions, in different areas. But you can see it. I, I, again, I, I've said this in other podcasts. I was a chairman of a department in the 1990s, and a, and. Um, that must have been awful. You know, I, I saw how, how even then, if we we were working hard to 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 get women in, in, into physics departments, and every time we made a hire that wasn't a woman, I always had to write a letter explaining why. And that was thirty years ago. And so it's not as if this stuff is new now, but we're still seeing disparities. And I think the 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 study that you let's talk about these studies, which I just think are fascinating at the extremely high levels. This guy named Julian Stanley had the idea back in the 1970s uh, or 60s to give the SAT to 13-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And the idea was uh, that it's just this regular SAT, and so a lot of the stuff in the SAT is on subjects that, that kids haven't even been taught at the age 13, but it will identify extreme levels of talent. And it was a brilliant idea, and it worked. And he had uh, a program which identified these kids, and they also had summer camps for them and a variety of things. But in addition to that, they had longitudinal follow-ups. And so you have good-sized large samples, 
that go back to children that were born in the 1960s and have been followed ever since. And remember what I said earlier about the difficulty of studying the high end is you need big sample sizes of people who are out of that. They've got that. Mm-hmm. Here are the two best things of all. Uh, the first is that you now have a set of males and females going into college and choosing careers for whom any differences in skill sets are in a sense irrelevant because all of these kids just about are capable of pursuing any occupation that they want to pursue. Uh, Notice it's the study of mathematically precocious youth. So you have very high math skills among the women too. That's one good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are, these are different cohorts which are truly exceptional math skills and they're, and they're, and they're, you know, and they're good. And they're females and males and both being studied and again just to emphasize being studied from the time they're young to when they're in their 50s so which is really uh, wonderful I, I did not know it's just, it just seems to me a dream study for social scientists the, the second well the second big advantage of the sample and this may come as a surprise to people who still think that feminism is a new phenomenon there was probably more intense socialization in the upper middle class uh, for gender neutrality in the 1970s than there is now. Yeah, uh, that's a problem. That was the decade when women can have it all. That was the decade when men need uh, women need men like a fish needs a bicycle. To a common mm-hmm. phrase, yeah, when him, the, uh, when when gender neutral toys were already a big thing, and the kids who ended up taking these tests in the uh, SIMPI program were drawn from Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Baltimore area, and overwhelmingly from these upper middle classes that were already fanatically uh, trying to socialize their their daughters into being interested in this stuff. So you, you have a really terrific sample, and here's what you found out. Well, here's a little tiny bit of yeah. all the fascinating things they, yeah. they found out. One is that, uh, that people even at that very high end, tend to go with what they do well. And that includes males who uh, had higher verbal skills than math skills. They tended to go toward toward uh, verbally oriented occupations. And women who had, uh, they followed the same pattern, except that women who clearly could, well, first place, there are more women than men who had the very high verbal skills these sets Mm -hmm. and they in a way males have fewer choices than females do at the high end because with an awful lot of the females in this program their math and their verbal were both in the top percentile Mm -hmm. whereas you had a fair number of the guys who were absolutely brilliant at math and hopeless at verbal or at least not nearly as strong I don't suppose you ever met anybody like that in the physics department. <laughs> uh, but in a lot of ways, yes. m- most of the extremely mathematically talented guys were going to go into STEM because that's what they were good at and they would go mm-hmm. to it. Whereas you had a lot of women who could have gone either way in terms of their skills and they tended to go toward the, uh, uh, toward the verbally or people oriented courses. <clears throat> and, this guy's so this data started being collected in the 60s and so like the notion that there wasn't even more intense societal pressure on women to do things like nursing versus becoming a medical doctor 
for example, the idea that there wasn't more social pressure then than there is now is probably absurd. And so like this guy just like wants to take these pressures out of the equation and just say, look, they scored well on these tests. They, and then they chose this career. Well, I don't know how much of it was just because they chose it or how much of it was that they were nudged in certain directions by authority figures, including parents, teachers, guidance counselors, um, people at universities who were help, like would maybe help you pick a major or those kind, like those kinds of roles in society. He's just like leaving out that part of the equation and that's stupid. And what I, what I found more interesting, even more, well, that reinforced that more was that there were two cohorts there. There were the merely exceptional cohort two, yeah. which is sort of in the top 1%. And then there was a cohort that was just off scale in the 0.1% level uh, and beyond, uh, I, you know, IQs, whether you like it or not, at you know, 180s or something. And, and, um, and the effect- How do you know somebody's IQ is 180 or they think their IQ is 180? Uh, don't worry, they'll tell you. Was almost stronger in the, in the cohort that was even more exceptional. Yeah, I know. And that that was very intriguing to me. I should say, by the way, just for, again for full disclosure, I grew up and I'm the child of the '60s. I was born in the '50s, and so what you're talking about is that that sensibility in in uh, urban environments of 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 of, uh, of of that age of feminism is something that I grew up with, and it was exactly that that everyone. You know, everyone was capable of everything, and women were, you know, w w should be the, the sky should be the limit. And it's really interesting for me to see having. So this is as good a place as any to end the pod. Um, just real quick, just because there was messaging like on TV and stuff by people who meant well, surely that yeah, uh, if if you're a girl in school, you could do anything a man can do, and all that. Those people meant well, but that just because that was the messaging that some people were receiving some of the time doesn't mean that that's what society society's pressure was saying to people right like a like a psa and societal pressure are two completely different things the, those psas existed because of the societal pressure and because people who meant well and probably <clears throat> believed what they were saying put those psas out and those psas and that kind of messaging would be unnecessary if the societal pressure wasn't such that, you know, uh, girls or young women needed to be told actually that you could do math for your career, that it's not just boys that can do math or whatever, because <clears throat> you wouldn't need to tell anybody that if that was just like sort of the accepted thing that was going on in society. And so Lawrence Krauss thinks that because basically in whatever liberal enclave he was in, there was this messaging about, um, sex and gender equality that that must be what was going on in society at that time and that's not true that messaging was a counter message to what was going on in society otherwise it would not be there that's it why else you got to fucking put out a psa unless you want people to stop doing something or you want to nudge people in a certain direction because you think it's the right direction to nudge them in we don't put out psas that are like hey everybody the sky's blue because we don't have to worry about that. Everybody can see the sky's blue. We don't put out PSAs that say like, you know, uh, if your toilet overflows, call a plumber. The plumbers have advertisements, which are trying to nudge you in the direction of their plumbing company. But these are things that we don't have to counter program against because 
these are things that we understand. So what he just said is stupid. Nobody would have had to tell anybody that if that wasn't, if that wasn't like counter to the pressures put on, especially young girls by, by society. And I can't imagine what that was like in the sixties, right? I mean, the sixties weren't, wasn't too far off from leave it to beaver. You know what I'm saying? Wasn't too far off from leave it to beaver. Some shows in the sixties were controversial just because a woman was like a working girl. You know what I'm saying? That was a controversial thing to have on TV in the sixties in some ways, depending on how it was presented. If it was presented as a novelty, then it was just a novelty. But if it was presented as this is just this person's life, it was controversial in some ways. <clears throat> and I remember too, that I felt I didn't really know it at the time and I didn't understand it. My sister was interested in biology and I wondered why everyone who talked to her specifically brought up marine biology. And, you know, now I think about it and I'm like, well, marine biology seems like something that was being pushed on young women and girls as like their way into STEM for whatever reason. And it might just be like, that's just an anecdote. That might just be my experience. But I'd bet there were a lot of girls who wanted to be marine biologists. And I just wonder if that's like a nudge from other people in the sciences being like, well, this is where you belong in the sciences. And fucking don't get me wrong. A marine biologist is probably a pretty cool career. Like if, if you get like a grant to like go study something like on a boat or on an island somewhere or whatever, that's probably pretty fucking cool. But I just, I just kind of think about that now it kind of comes into my mind now and i wonder if even within the even within the sciences there are nudges that happen in in certain in certain ways in certain directions and um i haven't fully uh flushed that out in my mind so you know maybe i'll have to think about that some more or maybe i'll ask some marine biologists about it if we ever uh if we ever get big enough that we have a contingent of marine biologists in our audience I don't doubt that a marine biologist has listened to one of our shows. I just am not confident that we have a large enough audience that there's a contingent of them to speak of because it's a pretty specialized field and not a lot of people are in that field. So anyway, um, I hate to cut this off right here because I know we're going to watch the rest of it in the post game. I'll probably put either the entire post game out or just the rest of this discussion out as like a, like a bonus on the podcast feed. So um, you know, make sure you kind of keep an eye on that podcast listeners and podcast listeners. Thank you. The show does really well. And, um, we never would have imagined how well this show would have done when we spun it off from the Plex because the women on the Plex were like, if you play another Jordan Peterson clip, I'm quitting. <laughs> and so, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the show. Thanks for, uh, the love and support of people, um, in my little Twitter community, the gurus pod guys have been pretty cool to us. Uh, Dr. Green, I stand Dr. Green, Katja. Just all, all our uh, uh, fucking Ina from uh, Polite Conversations, Mark from Ultraviolet Pod. Just thanks to everybody who's been like supportive of this show. Um, it's been this show has been like a game changer for this uh, network and organization. And I guess now is one more time we're moving to a new studio. It's going to be a much bigger studio, and we need some stuff. So if you can go to EchoplexMedia.com/support, kick us a few bucks. There's also an Amazon wish list there. And if you can't or don't want to support us monetarily, just share this show with your friends. Let them know that you enjoy it. Let them know that you don't enjoy it. Leave us a one-star review on iTunes, whatever works for you. 
And as always, this is Boomers by Periscope. I'm going to change the color of the lights in this room, pull down this banner, let some fresh air in here, change the um, contents of my beverage to uh, one with alcohol. And uh, we'll watch the rest of this. And we might, if I can stay up late, I'm pretty tired. But if if I, we can stay up a little late tonight, we might watch uh, Kyle Kalinske and uh, Jordy Pete. So this is uh, this is Boomers by Periscope. And uh, I'll be back with the post game.
Friday nights at 9 p.m. It's time to sit back, relax, and play conspiracy bingo with Echoplex Media. We've curated the best conspiracy theorists the internet has to offer and turned it into a live bingo game you can play for free with absolutely no prizes but bragging rights. You won't find a live stream like this anywhere else, and that's probably better for everyone else's mental health. Tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com.